This episode is brought to you by HP+. In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart too? Now printing is smart with HP+. And the HP Smart app is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are. Even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh, that is smart. HP+. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com slash smart. This episode is brought to you by PayPal. These days, choices are everywhere. Like, for instance, the milk in your coffee. Would you like it from a cow? A nut? A tree? Everyone wants options. And now your customers have a new option in the way they pay. With PayPal in person. Just generate your unique QR code in the PayPal app for them to scan. And start accepting PayPal in person today. Learn more at paypal.com slash us slash get QR code. Welcome to episode 107 of the Washed Up Emo podcast. I am Tom Mullen from washedupemo.com. Today we welcome Adam Rubenstein from Chamberlain slash Split Lip. Split Lip were a post-hardcore band from the Midwest. They changed their name when they went a little bit more roots called Chamberlain. Uh, Adam Rubenstein and I met back when I was in college and his band was touring on their last legs. And we stayed in touch and met in New York, as I will tell the story shortly. Adam was a great uh, person to be on, and we hung out in his apartment in Brooklyn. He's doing amazing things right now with film scoring and music supervision, and uh, as always, playing music, if it's solo or new bands, or sometimes with Chamberlain. So, hope you enjoy the episode with Adam. Thank you for all the support. I've gotten some amazing emails recently from people, so thank you so much for being a part of the show. This is episode 107 of the Washed Up Email Podcast. With Adam Rubenstein from Chamberlain and Splitlip. Adam Rubenstein on the podcast. Hey. What's up? I think it's I think it's, it's worth mentioning uh, the random occurrence of us meeting again in New York. Yeah. After because my girlfriend in college booked your band yes. for three shows in North Carolina, which yes. I don't know how she got in touch with you or it was pre-internet. Who it was, knows? It's yeah. all like yeah, wild wild west. Like nobody knows. <laughs> and <laughs> then book shows. you played the shows, and then of course she had a dorm, I had an apartment, and you stayed at my apartment. And hanging out. And again, remember, this is before following you on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. And then you left, and that was it. I don't think I even emailed your maybe. I don't even think I had your email. I don't know if I had an email. Yeah, I probably didn't have an email. This was like 2000. It was probably a .edu address for my years in Indiana. And then randomly see you on the street in New York... Yeah. And go, hey, Adam. <laughs> actually, I, I remember it well. You actually didn't say, hey, Adam. You were like, Chamberlain. <laughs> you just, I yelled Chamberlain? You just yelled Chamberlain in the East Village, and I turned around. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I recognize that dude. And we've been friends ever since. Yeah, weird. <laughs> I like that, though. There's like a little offline where, I don't know, by chance, I saw you. Yeah. That was random. Yeah. It happens more than you think, too. Um, which, like I said, is totally flattering. Like, I'll run into people. Like, I saw you in a basement in D.C. in, you know, 1990-whatever. Yeah. Um, not that I'm tooting my own horn here, but, uh, again, it's just flattering. I just can't believe the, the staying power of all of it. But anyway. That's but yeah, cool. We've been friends since. So, you grew up in Indiana. Yep. Correct? Well, uh, I'm actually I was born in Illinois and moved around a lot, but yeah. In 1989, I moved to Indiana. And is that, were you playing music then at the, at the time? Were you playing Yeah, I mean, then? I moved here from Brussels, and I was a huge, like, metalhead in Brussels, and I skated. Of course you did. Yeah, so I moved here, I was sort of like, and I moved, sorry, when I moved to Indianapolis, um, I started hanging out with kids that skated in junior high school. Um, and of course, naturally, you meet the kids that skate, you meet the kids that play guitar, um... 
and uh, kind of bridged from like sort of metal to like punk rock like really fast. And I formed a punk band called Decrepit that I sang for. Fantastic. Is there anything out there that anyone can listen to? No. I mean, I, I can let you listen to <laughs> post-podcast. Um, but yeah, we, uh, we made a cassette and I used to like go to the punk rock shows in Indianapolis at like a really young age, like 13. And um, through all that, I met, I met the Split Lip guys who had a band. I wasn't in it. Oh, really? I mean, yeah, I'm technically not an original member of Split Lip. I mean, they were just playing like some birthday parties and maybe a community center show or two. But anyway, Decrepit and Split Lip played uh, a show together. And um, Curtis went to my junior high school and sort of just asked me to come play with them. And then I was sort of indoctrinated into Split Lip really seamlessly. And then I stopped doing Decrepit. Yeah. What was the and what was the vibe? I can't split believe lip? we're talking about decrepit on a podcast. <laughs> what was I mean was split lip that was that was they they were a hardcore band, right? Yeah. How would you describe it for somebody that hadn't heard it? Uh, they were a hardcore band, but there was sort of like a playful, like melodic element. I mean I think those guys you know, it's kind of a cross between um you know, New York hardcore and like it has sort of the melodic sensibilities of a lot of like lookout record stuff. Yeah. Um, you guys were all in school at the time too, right? Or yeah, we, yeah. 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 I think the skating too, like those guys, like they all skated. So like there was certainly like the sort of like Southern California, like melodic rock thing that was sort of hybrid. I guess that's sort of indicative of just like being in the center of, in being in the Midwest, you know, yeah. you borrow some from the West coast, you borrow some from the East coast. So yeah, it was and weird. Was, we're listening to like Integrity and like Green Day and Op Ivy like all at the same time. Yeah. yeah. But again, was there a record store that you guys were going to or was it the radio station at the college or? Uh, there was like a local skate shop in Carmel, Indiana that we hung out at. Um, yeah, there was a, there used to be a, a record chain in Indianapolis. Um, but there wasn't like a small punk rock store or anything like that. Um, were you doing mail order? Were you like hearing oh, these yeah. records? And then yeah. shows too. And shows, yeah. Essentially. Um, but yeah, it was that era where you would find out about music from like compilations that you would get with like records that you bought or. A zine. Um, yeah. Or, you know, you'd buy like a seven inch from, you know, Revelation or Victory or whatever the label was. And whatever the. Whatever the little like, uh, you know, insert catalog whatever bands were listed on there you like checked them out i mean you probably remember i mean i can't remember how many th- how many times i bought things blindly oh yeah oh this is a cool cover cool yeah and then it you ended up you only had 10 cds at the time so yeah, you'd exactly. have to listen to it um but seven inches and stuff too oh yeah of course um there was a low risk three bucks two bucks or whatever yeah uh no i mean if just if one band recommended another band you just were you were in yeah and then for you, was it, when did you guys feel like, okay, this is going really well? Were you playing locally? Were you doing little weekend tours? Um, yeah, we were doing weekend tours. I mean, it all kind of started with Louisville. I mean, I remember I was like 15, maybe 14, and Charlie and I, the drummer, were the youngest guys in the band. Oh, so this was even, this was before college then, with Split Lip. Oh, yeah. Oh, I mistake. Yes, you're totally right. Yeah. So this is still high school. Junior high school. Oh, wow. Um, I mean, I was a couple years younger than than most of the guys in the band. Um, So, yeah, when we first played our first out-of-town show, which was in Louisville, um, my parents, like, drove Charlie and I down in their minivan while the rest of the band went in David Moore's... station wagon actually david was the second singer there's a guy named steve that sang before david when i initially joined the band um and we maybe played a handful of shows 10 or 15 shows with steve um and then david was kind of part of that whole scene kind of part of the punk scene and uh he showed up rehearsal one day and was just better than steve so we just got rid of steve (laughs) but anyway back to louisville yes my parents drove me down or drove charlie and i down and um we played with a band called Endpoint, 
and Endpoint kind of became our big brothers. Um, and I think from there, um, it kind of opened up this whole world. We found out Endpoint was playing shows in, um, you know, in Dayton, uh, in St. Louis, and other other towns in the in the Midwest. And they invited us to play shows, and we started meeting people. You know, meeting. Um, people with common interests, people that are into the same music, people that were, you know, homespun promoters. And we just had a little circuit of shows we played all, all over the Midwest. Seeing, okay, here's another scene. Here's a bunch of different kids. Here's another label. Yeah, Louisville's our second home. And then there was other bands, you know, there was Falling Forward and, um, and Kindle and other bands like from that, um, from that city that we all started playing shows together. Um, and it was like a cool little punk community that we had in the midwest um yeah there's you know bands in dayton columbus cincinnati um chicago like it was it was cool it was definitely like you felt like you were part of something you know it felt like it was very like unique to the time um and you know being like coming to indiana and, and being a metalhead prior like i i had never experienced that sort of like community part yeah, yeah exactly and then for what other things were happening at that time? Did you have any... Did you go into the studio yet? Had you even recorded anything? Uh, we met uh, Dirk from Doghouse um, at like a warehouse show in Ohio. And um, I think he approached Curtis or David in the bathroom. I don't, I don't remember the whole story. He said, hey, do you guys want to make a 7-inch? So we're like, sure, yeah, absolutely. Well, let's make a 7-inch and that was that no one had ever approached he was the only guy that ever approached us about doing anything oh wow we were just excited <clears throat> so yeah we're actually all all most of us well we all live in like suburbs of northern in indianapolis but we went to a, a studio in carmel um recorded four songs god bless the engineer at the studio because um man we were young and we played really fast and were very pompous um but man, we I mean, we thought we were creating Led Zeppelin too. Like we thought it was just like the greatest record in the world. <laughs> um, and you know, it kind of holds up. Um, but we did that, and then um, yeah, eventually we made for the love of the wounded with Dirk, and then we you know, um, yeah, and then we started playing shows everywhere after that. I mean, we would go spend a lot of time on the East Coast. Now, was this you still in high school? Or you got yeah, I was a sophomore in high school when I went on my first like summer U.S. tour, and like God bless my parents for like allowing. Yeah, me that's to do what it. I was about to say. Like for them to say go and do this, you're that's I don't think my we, parents would have done. We that. We rented a van and we had a friend who was 21. Our friend Isa was 21, um, and he was sort of like the uh, <laughs> he's sort of our like guardian as far as my parents were concerned. You know, they actually, I remember they invited Issa over and the whole band over for like a meeting, um, basically just to make sure everything was... That's smart. Yeah, to and make sure nice. everything was cool. It was very, I mean, yeah, I'll forever be thankful to my parents for allowing me to do that because I talk to other parents these days who, you know, close to my age that have kids, um, high school kids, and they're kind of awestruck that my parents allowed me to do that. And, you know, we were straight and we didn't, like, get into too much trouble. But, you know, we were sleeping on the side of the road. We were staying in weird places. <laughs> um, if they knew half of what we got into, they probably wouldn't have been too pleased. Were you freaked out those first few tours? or No. No, I was having, we were all having a great time. You know, but we were kids. We are stupid, you know, driving yeah. through the night. <laughs> the bookings were always ridiculous. It was, like, Salt Lake City one night and, like, L.A. the next night. <laughs> Um, I think the worst drive we did was we did Tallahassee to um, Austin, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, my God. <laughs> Which was <just> stupid. <laughs> but, you know, you when you don't have any other responsibilities, that's just what you do. So that was your summer between sophomore and junior year? Yeah, we usually did it every summer. And then we would do, like, all these weekend trips where we would maybe do, you know, D.C., um, D.C., Philly, Boston, you know, obviously spent a lot of time out on the East Coast. Obviously, you didn't have the uh, instant euphoria of getting a like or getting a favorite or anything on social media. What yeah. were you feeling 
Like, was it selling a few t-shirts, selling some seven inches? Did you feel momentum? Did you feel like, or we're in a band, we go and do this and that's it. Because I feel like there's some sense of, like a false sense of like success sometimes now. Oh, yeah. Versus any time previously in the internet, it's like you had to just go out and it was like hand, it was hand to hand. Yeah. Well, thing is, we started playing shows and kids start screaming the words back to you when you're when you're playing i guess yeah Um, you're right that's how you knew yeah and then we'd we'd get invited to do you know more and more shows and we would just get more but it was was such a network like i was just thinking like for example like um you know in dc we used to play with a band called ashes all the time then we would invite ashes to brian mcturnan yeah brian mcturnan and like uh you know uh and we invite them to do shows in indy and you know We'd meet a band in Dayton, Ohio, and we would swap shows with bands. You know, that was like Endpoint was the first band that we sort of did that with, and then it became something we did with. I mean, it kind of our whole career was kind of always that way. I mean, we started making a website towards the end of the band. I remember seeing like a template, and we never we never even launched it. Oh it, no it's way! Just, it's amazing to think about it. Or the band only had an email, and that was like amazing to see. You're like, yeah. wow, they have an email. Yeah. Yeah, I could could email them. Yeah, we sound really old talking about this, but but no, I think it's an interesting because the age group that we're in knew about it, knew about without it, yeah, and now we have it. The internet and the everything's fast. It's I think an interesting thing where it's not like we 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 understood both sides of it, and that time was the last moment I think before. Yeah. It really was. We were like the last generation of, of yeah, pre-social media bands. But I think about it all the time now. And on one hand, I get really frustrated because I think to myself, man, if we just had a SoundCloud account, like how many more, more people. people could we have reached? If we had videos on YouTube, if we had, um, you know, that sort of social media reach, how much bigger we could have been. And sometimes I get frustrated about that. But then on the other hand, I think about the fact that there's such an oversaturation of bands because it's easy to record. It's easy to get your music out there. It's much more in vogue. I mean, we were kind of outcasts, you know. I, I went to like a, I come from a, a wealthy suburb, um, and you know, we were into skating and, and punk rock, and it wasn't something that everybody did. You know, it was before the Warp Doors, before Bamboozle. It was Green before, Day, all those kind of like. The, the I saw broke. Green Day not to toot my own horn i can show you after the show i have a shirt that billy joe hand screened in the back of their van for me when they played for like 20 people at the broad ripple community center in indianapolis no way and charlie from the band like jumped on stage and was like act- there was no stage actually it was just a floor what what record was that were they touring on uh 39 uh maybe kerplunk i don't know that's cool though there's another for early early record obviously yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah their, look, their look doc on spotify was cool like I didn't little, see it. They had like a, I forget how many four part thing on like, like their yeah. career. It was cool. It was like a behind the music, but not really. Huh. Um, but it had a ton of old footage from. Back oh yeah, then. they were they were on the road a lot, and I remember seeing them all the time. Yeah. Um, but you were saying just like you were wondering like, all right, what's the band like? Maybe you had an amazing video that like people would have like flipped out on or something yeah. it's just funny to think about what was i uh, it, it took a little bit more to be a band yeah and i think that's why towards the end of the band i just i wanted to be you know it's a very un un punk ethos thing to say but i very much wanted to be on a major label and all my friends were signing to major labels because that was sort of the only way you to got out, out there you know we never made a a single music video I kind of thought in that era, I'm like, man, we need to, you know, get on, you know, MTV or Fuse or VH1 or, or whatever yeah, the vehicle that was. Yeah, because that was the, the gatekeeper. Yeah. Um, and we need to be on the radio and you need to, you need clout and you need money and you need, um, and, you know, we were on a label and we, you know, had a college radio push and stuff like that. But I mean, it's probably how you've discovered Chamberlain. Yeah. College radio. Yeah. Um, but. You know, I always wanted the band to get a bigger reach, but that was kind of how you had to do it. I mean, there's a few examples, you know. And the thing is that you were in these pockets of scenes that it wasn't like 
uh, I don't know. You almost had to know where the show was, and you had to know the guy. Like yeah. it wasn't like a lot of them weren't in the weekly. Maybe they're in the weeklies. You know the the alternative weeklies, but they weren't in you know the press. Like it's not like a random yeah. kid's gonna find out about it. You had to like know that one sketchy kid at your school. Oh no, I forgot how much time I used to spend flyering for shows too. Yeah. Now it's like two clicks Facebook <laughs> yeah. by Why didn't anyone show up? Man, like I would spend, yeah, like a whole weekend flyering, like going to the skate shop, going to the record store, going to schools, going to all the neighborhood high schools um, and flyering, going to Kinko's. We you know, do, I've talked of, about that a lot on the podcast about how you got to have your friend at Kinko's. Yeah. And we would just, Curtis was really good at that. He would just um, make little ransom note looking flyers and. David was an artist. We were all kind of, we were always into the visuals like really early on, but um, flyers, yeah. Um, thankfully, that's not part of the game anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I thought about too, like the, you know, all the trees saved from not having yeah. crappy flyers. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I didn't even, I remember moving to New York in, in 2001 and Charlie and I put together like a little, um, we put together a band called Bad Moon Music that was sort of just like, as a goof, sort of like a fun little like aggro punk, pro- melodic punk project. But yeah, even then I remember going to like, just moving to New York and not knowing how to promote a show and like making little postcard sized flyers and like stapling them to like telephone poles. Yeah. Oh, that was totally still then. Yeah. Just all those, he still flyer then. Yeah. And the ignorance to believe that someone would just see a flyer and say, huh, go check you know what? This. I'm not doing anything tonight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> five bucks i'm not in the greatest city in the world you know what? Yeah, there's I'm, no other bands either there's nothing else going on that's a thing too i mean i was just talking about how it wasn't like as in vogue to be in a band i remember moving to new york and just like kind of you know i tried to play with various people and just walking around with my guitar in the lower east side i started to feel like a walking cliche and in indiana i felt like we were something special like we were in a band like we were doing something that no one else was doing and, and then all like these people every... i went to high school with were you know playing football or soccer or applying for college and i was playing in a band like <laughs> you know i was unique um but yeah probably the best thing that ever happened was moving here it was sort of a wake-up call that it's not not that special yeah <laughs> like you're like uh-huh yeah and exactly. oh you have a guitar yeah cool everybody does yeah before that happened though from uh the name change i think is always a funny story that people you know from split lip to chamberlain and then the sort of the yeah. The the sound change, but obviously, you know, Fate's Got a Driver is sort of the bigger one for you guys. Uh the name change was really weird. Um and I'm I still don't really understand it, even though, you know, I was part of the process. You know, I was always the youngest guy in the band, so I kind of left those decisions sort of up to my older brothers in the band. Um but I remember um you know, in that time too, it's like we were the sort of like even split lip stuff, which is the heaviest stuff we did, it still is very melodic. Um, you know, it's like my metal influences, but you know, um, we were listening to like, like I said, Green Day, and um, you know, Dave was really into Seven Seconds, and like those melodic stuff that we really loved. Uh, but we would get on these bills with like, you know, say, you know, Snapcase or Integrity or Dead Guy, like just tough aggro bands, and our name was Split Lip. I think it got to the point where like we sort of felt like we were expected to be harder edge than we really were. Um and then David came up with the name Chamberlain, which is a name I think at the time he said he always wanted to like name a son if he ever had one, which he didn't end up naming a son Chamberlain, obviously. <laughs> um and we already recorded and put out a record that we had just put out when we made this decision. Really? I didn't know that. I well, thought it was after re- there is a split lip version yes. you're right yes there's a split lip version of fate's got a driver which we recorded in detroit um and then david decided he didn't um like his vocal performance so him and i um i remember we we drove up to uh we drove up to detroit um or toledo actually and then we recorded it in detroit sort of in the middle of the night and uh redid the vocals and then kind of just made the decision to like re-released the record under a different name because we were still really proud of the record we you know every time you finish songs you always think they're the greatest songs you're ever gonna write 
And instead of just making a new record as Chamberlain, we felt like we had to salvage this record. Yeah. And it wasn't that easy to make a record in those days. No. Well, studio know, time. Studio and... time was like a huge expenditure. Um, but Dirk at, at Doghouse was like, cool. Um, but I've thought about it a lot. I, I don't know if we're the only band that's ever done that. Surely there's another story, but I don't I don't know of one. Where it's like the old, the same <laughs> record, different name. Yeah. Because people thought you were going to be tough guys. <laughs> yeah. Um. But even now, you know, I don't know. I have mixed feelings. Like, maybe we should have kept the name. Maybe we shouldn't have kept the name. I definitely like the name Chamberlain better. Um, it seems to suit us better in our old age. But um, And I think that that record put you on the map, too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, we were maturing then, you know. The songs were a little disjointed in terms of, like, you know, tempo and musicianship. And, Had you, you know, started college yet then? Yeah. Yeah, I was I was at Indiana University, and I I got accepted into Indiana, and the whole band kind of followed me there. Interesting. And then they all ended up going to school, and you know, getting very not all of them, but um, everyone had a scholastic, uh, flirted with. I mean, Clay and David got degrees. Um, but yeah, we all kind of hung out in Bloomington, and Bloomington became like a a second home for us, and that was sort of where we all, and that was where the Moon My Saddle was sort of completely written and recorded and we recorded it at mike wanchek's studio called echo park mike wanchek is the guy who produced all the mellencamp records he's still in mellencamp's band no way yeah and he actually plays on a record and um this guy mosey who played keyboards in mellencamp's band plays on the record um and they were just starting out then oh no 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 oh oh sorry well, sorry but like what well, then how the hell did you get involved they just well, liked they, you? that was just the local studio oh that was just the local studio wow <laughs> but uh but we started you know admittedly being bloomington kind of like falling under the spell and the allure of like mellencamp we've started to get into like you know bob dylan the band tom petty um doing a lot of that stuff before and i'm not again i'm not tooting our horn saying we were like ahead of the curve but i think it's a natural progression to write you know melodic punk rock and sort of transition into more roots rock and americana but um I don't think it's anything special we did, but I think in that particular scene, in the you know sort of the emo punk world, we were probably one of the first bands to just like take that leap, just say you know what, fuck it, like these are the songs we like. I mean, there's certain songs on Move My Saddle that you know are so disjointed from anything on Fate's Got a Driver, like a song like Last to Know or Racing Cincinnati. They're just rock ballads, yeah, nothing to do with with the scene. Um. I mean, it's fun, you know, those other records like Get Up Kids Making on a Wire, kids were like, what the hell is that? And yeah. now it's like revered and people dig it or say, like, or Promise Rings last record. Yeah. It's, you know, they kind of took that leap. And of course, if you do it in the punk world, there's like initial like backlash. Like, you're supposed to make that same record every time. Yeah. And then all those people grow up. But yeah, I mean, Get Up Kids, I mean, those are bands we all played shows with too. You know, Get Up Kids and the Promise Ring. We, we did like a little mini tour with the Promise Ring. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not surprising that everyone kind of, you know, you get older, turn to the Americana dark side. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. The dark side, but <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> older, older side. Older I mean, side. It, yeah. So with the, with the moon, my saddle, which again, that was something that I think for me, I liked fate's got to driver, but the moon, my saddle, I don't know. I, the songs were hooky. Like, I was like, these are great fucking songs, like, and it still fit with, like, a, like if you still played, like, a festival, it still worked. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, most people say that that's their favorite Chamberlain record, and I think it's it's the record that really holds up. And when I think about the time we were recording it, we were sort of, like, peaking as musicians and writers and really finding ourselves, and, and you know, it... it yeah it did come from like a truly pure place. You know, these are the songs that we like. These are the things that we were into. And in college, you don't realize it at the time, but it's like, you have so much free time, but you think you're busy. Oh yeah. And then when you leave <laughs> college, you're like, Oh wow. I was actually, I could have done a lot more. <laughs> oh yeah, man. I mean, I used to spend like a month just trying to figure out a bridge for one song. <laughs> so much time. So, so much- kids, if you're listening, college, just, just try to do it all. Yeah. <laughs> No, but now, I mean, I sit down and I'll write a song in an afternoon and it's done. Yeah. I, I wish I had that, you know, because my, my time is 
way more precious. Yeah. Uh, but I wish I had that mentality then. We could have been way more prolific. I mean, everything was so precious. Adam, you done that bridge yet? Yeah. Leave me alone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes, when the, moon, when the moon is half full. Yeah. And I've finished my one beer, yeah. then I will finish the bridge. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so for from that, you guys, did you, you did some tours for that, but it yeah. felt like it was limited. Yeah, um, we hooked up with a... Yeah, it got weird. I mean, we hooked up with a um, a booking agent out of Chicago. We never had a booking agent. And um, we... Uh, sorry, the booking agent we got is this guy named Matt Suar. Um, and it's a really tragic story. He has kids. He's a wonderful guy. But he recently victim of a hit and run. So I get a little, a little emotional, like, talking about Matt. But... Um, he kind of booked us uh, sort of like in the Big Ten circuit. We played a lot of like sports bars and stuff like that. And um, we kind of lost our way, I think. I think that was sort of the beginning of the end for all the original members because, you know, we wrote this music that, you know, we thought we should be playing for, you know, fans of the Counting Crows or, yeah. you know, like Mellencamp. We or Mellencamp. We weren't like that dissimilar. And we didn't understand why we always had to, like, you know, play shows with the integrities of the world and whatnot um because we were just kind of caught caught and you know i don't know now i look at it differently I, i'm grateful for the scene that we had and the dedicated like fans that really love the band in that in that orbit um but at the time i just you know again, it's hard to jump out no and all of our friends were, were signing to major labels and you know we would get Every time we were in New York, we would get like taken out to dinner by like some prospective labels. We had labels fly in to Indianapolis to see us, fly to LA to see us during the Moon My Saddle. Yeah, right before, or right after, yeah, right after. Um, maybe right before too, a little bit too. Um, but I was sort of like just chomping at the bit to get there. So anyway, um, yeah, we got this booking agent. We started playing shows that really audiences that just you know we're college kids you know looking to hook up and looking to get drunk and it, it was just and wanted cover songs yeah oh we, we even learned some covers towards the end <laughs> <laughs> i'm embarrassed to say i mean stuff we like but um yeah so um yeah i'm I, not to put questions into your mouth but yeah that's sort of was the beginning of the end and then um I think David and I made a decision that we just wanted to like try something different. Like we were so exhausted from the whole major label hunt and like playing the sports bars and stuff. We just and nothing clicked. You didn't feel like anything was happening from all that. Yeah, and we had been a band for so long at that point um, that you know, I mean, admittedly, I feel like we kind of threw like um, Clay and, and Curtis, the bassist and guitar player of the band, kind of under the bus just to like try something different. Was Not, it a different uh, people wanted different things? Did those guys? Yeah, this dude Wade, this dude Stahl at one point was in the band. Um, we had and um, this dude Seth uh, were in the band. We, we toured for like another year and a half or so. Um, and I think the show that I was at, or the one that oh yeah yeah that was probably one of the last. That was the one of the last incarnate. Yeah, it was the last incarnation of Jane Berlin. Uh, was it would it be a four piece or a five piece? Four. Yeah, that was yeah that was the end. <laughs> we have it on video if anyone wants to see it yeah okay great <laughs> um but yeah we, but we were still playing some songs off fate's got a driver you know we were still not that you know we weren't completely divorced from the past but um and even then too we were still trying to play for labels and um and we had some success doing that you know i remember going out to south by southwest and having a bunch of labels come out to see us and but we just weren't the same band. I think I took for granted the chemistry I had with the original guys. You know, we all grew up together. We all understood each other. Um, yeah. So having that sort of different group people in the band, you could you you could feel it. Yeah, though, like the urgency was gone. There was no urgency. I mean, they're great guys, um, great musicians, but um, didn't really. You know, I think one of the things that made Chamberlain so unique is like coming from where we came and if you listen to you know the moon my saddle it's like oh sure like you could dismiss it as like oh these you know 
sound like college rock songs but then there's still like charlie's drumming is sort of still very still has this one foot in sort of the punk rock world he was such you know great proficient technical drummer um i can hear your shreds yeah curtis sort of plays these sort of you know joe lally inspired like melodic bass lines um you know even my stuff it's like it's rock and roll but it's still um you know palm muti and there's still like moments of yeah of split lip uh, clay too um and david you know you know he he a lot of people just compare him to springsteen but at the same time like that gravel and that yell was developed in the punk rock world and i think we definitely had a we had a thing like we definitely had a sound that i don't think sounded like other bands in the scene so when then when we decided to kind of again remove a couple members and just try to go full rock and roll it took a long time to understand that we lost the identity of like what made Chamberlain Chamberlain, I guess. And then who who was who did Exit Two Sixty Three? So yeah, that was that, that was iteration. That was that was yeah, Wade Parrish and Seth Greathouse and, and David and I. Um, and those are just songs, you know. David's family had a cabin uh, in the woods in Brown County, and we just had a little like digital four track, and a lot of those songs in Exit Two Sixty Three were just stuff that we recorded ourselves. Um, and then kind of like mixed after the fact and um you know the band's management put that record out like we had nothing to do um with like this 263 coming out when it did really i'm glad a lot of people like it but yeah at one point doghouse is going to put it out and then we kind of got frustrated with that situation for various reasons um and it just came out (laughs) i swear i i never knew it was it was even gonna come out but really yeah why did no one tell you eh, it's complicated i probably shouldn't get into it okay. on, this, on this podcast but you know um you know ma- some people that were managing us um basically invest a lot of time and energy and we were, we we're grateful to that um and they just thought people would love the songs and, and put them out and some people did love the songs you know some people it's some people's favorite record um but like i said it's 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 more rare i just i do feel like most people when they, they approach me about chamberlain it's usually fate's got a driver or, or moon my saddle yeah because that wasn't even a record i mean i think those songs could have been great i think a lot of songs on next so it, it frustrates me hearing that record because they're like they're all they're half finished ideas the whole thing is just sort of live recordings wow just like crap we were working on um you know i think half the songs could have been great if we had time to actually sit down and go to the studio and record the way we always did so after that point what were you guys what were you guys thinking had you been you hadn't moved to new york yet no i mean i think it's common for a lot of bands to do this but i remember we played like an awful sports bar show in in ohio somewhere and uh i had actually never finished my journalism degree in indiana i had like a summer left i was like you know what i'm gonna go to to bloomington for the summer and let's just like kind of take a break from doing this and then i think we were just happier <laughs> and yeah it, and it just never happened again for years um and then i ended up making like my solo adam dove record that summer when i was back in school i like wrote that whole record um when did that come out 2002 2002 okay yeah because you were already in new york by then yeah yeah and i kind of moved to new york thinking like that was the thing i was going to do but I wasn't really good enough being a front man at that time to like really make a go of it. Um, and then I ended up just like working. I got a job at EMI Music Publishing, um, working in their tape room, and uh, was just comfortable. Like, got a girlfriend. Like, was happy in New York. Was seeing shows, playing with people. Chuck and I did that Bad Moon Music Project, yeah, kind of yeah. for fun. But then you always like you were. I feel like the the networking from the like punk rock world. And yes, that happens through the internet, but I, I still think there's something else that you and I interacted physically, and right. I could I noticed you in New York, and I think that's deeper than us just emailing. Yeah, that a lot of those relationships you had, those people have gone on to like play with other musicians, or yeah. you're always like, hey, I was at this show, and you're like, well, how'd you get it? Like, oh, my friend plays guitar with them, or like, yeah. you know, like you had a network of people at that time that all kind of moved on and still stayed in music. Yeah. And I'm still friends with all those, yeah. like almost all those people. And basically it weren't for that band. I mean, and you could probably say the same thing about your career. Like 
there it's you know there's a there's a sort of like six degrees of separation to like everything i've ever done yeah. in my life since then i mean if i think about it you know i think about what i'm doing now i mean i'm mostly a film composer but i got my first job in commercial music because a music supervisor at this commercial music company came to see one of our reunion shows at the bowery ballroom so awesome <laughs> yeah and was when like, were those again 2009 yeah oh, yeah it's a poster on the wall where i think it's i know you have really good documentation of your <laughs> history i like that oh yeah yeah my solo stuff's on the wall too just <laughs> adam has a limited be. space now uh <laughs> yeah, i'm looking around his apartment right now a lot of baby stuff so yeah let's we just have, let adam have his corner yes <laughs> we have a kid now so there's not a lot of room for everything um so they came to that reunion show yeah well, what happened was in 2008 i believe um this dude, uh, Brian Peterson, wrote this book called Burning Fight, which is sort of a history of the Midwest hardcore scene. And then he put on this big like weekend bash at the Metro and asked us to play. So cool. And was like, hey, I'll fly you guys out. And basically was like, you know, I'll give you X amount of dollars. It wasn't about the money because it, it was like, but it covered expenses, what he was offering. So I kind of hit all the other guys up. And I was like, would you guys want to do this? And, and you hadn't done anything since since you'd left to go back to that last summer of school yeah um yeah since i'd been in new york we hadn't been really you know barely hardly in contact with each other um but yeah so we agreed to do that but then we're like you know what we can't just play the metro we have to play in indianapolis and i was like we probably have to play in louisville too so we played headliners in louisville we did the club (laughs) birdies in indianapolis and uh it's funny because i have a thing on the wall there that says the chamberlain show is sold out that was like on the door in indy that's awesome and i remember thinking like this has never happened (laughs) we've never sold out a show so i'm taking this you know this hand scrawled flyer that was on the door and i'm i'm framing it because it 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 meant a lot to me then um but then it was weird because then we ended up doing some more stuff um i was working at doghouse records um after i left emi and then what were you doing for doghouse you're like a product manager product manager yeah um Tell everybody what a product manager is. Well, it was probably a little bit of a different role at Doghouse. You were I like mean, a GM, I thought, too. Like, I kind of doing really, a lot. Really, but I sort of, like, I guided the production timeline for digital and physical for, for everything. Um, and that was basically it, you know. Traffic cop. Yeah, I mean, but that was when we still had a distributor. I mean, I was basically the liaison for our, you know, distributor. I helped, you know, just dealt with all the mailings and all all the physical everything. Because uh, we were still, you know, selling CDs in that era. Yeah. So there was, there was no one cared of, about vinyl. A lot to do. Yeah. Well, yeah, I was making vinyl too, but um, kind of when I left, we were anyway. This is boring. Um, when I left, we were kind of <laughs> getting way more into into doing vinyl, uh, and then it became more of a management company, and, and I left. But um, I was sitting at my desk, and I just got a call um, from the Gaslight Anthems manager. Um, this chick Anna called, and she just was like, "Yeah, I mean." Brian really likes your band and you know the, those guys grew up and they're wondering if you wanted to like open for their American Slang tour. I was like, "Wow." And I I liked the band. I knew the band. Yeah. And I knew that they were going to play some big venues that we never got to play as a band. So it took me like and they said I had like a week to like decide. Whoa. Um so basically I spent <laughs> truth of the matter is I almost all the other guys like said, "What the hell? Let's do it." Uh, David, per usual, was like the one kind of holdout, um, and he was kind of waffling. He kind of wanted to do it, and I ended up um, actually confirming the tour when I thought Dave was probably going to do it because we kind of ran out of time. And <laughs> eventually, we 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 um, you know we knocked the Coke machine all the way over, and he he was he was into doing it, um, and it was great because we got to play like. First Avenue, The Wiltern, wow. know, House of Blues Boston, like just clubs that we never got to play as a band. And we were also on tour with Tim Barry. We used to do a lot of shows with The Veil oh, back in the day. Yeah. In the Split Lip Days, we played with The Veil a lot. Uh, so it was just, it was great. But like I said, you know, just being in that band, everything that's ever happened to me since that band is like sort of because of that band. Like I couldn't believe, you know, in like 2010, we were like on this like big tour. That Brian like was stoked on your records and then wanted yeah. to take you guys. Yeah, out. and then Brian did um did a seven inch with us like a tour seven inch sort of for fun. He met me in Dumbo and we just sort of recorded a version of uh, a song of the South that spoiled me. 
uh, like an acoustic version of it. Um, yeah, but it was a blast. I mean, big thanks to those guys for for allowing us to do that. And then we did that entire summer tour, coast to coast, and then um, we got invited to do Crazy Fest in Louisville or in um, 2011, and then we haven't done dick since. <laughs> <laughs> well, what did you do lives. with Adam? Or sorry, what did you do with David? Um, that like it was like the single or like a two or three song thing. We made a record. Is it David you made a record? Or? Yeah, I maybe I remember because you sent me like two songs at a time or something. Yeah, yeah. But you had made a record. David made a solo record. Um, I co-wrote a lot of the song, maybe half the songs on the record. But David, um, we were kind of workshopping it for a long time, and then he met this producer. Um, named John David Webster that actually lived in his neighborhood in Noblesville, Indiana. Oh, wow. Um, and um, kind of took a backseat to that record at that point. I was in David's band and and um, thought we wrote some really great songs. Um, but in the end, that record, I, I sort of feel like it's, it's a great record and I still really love a lot of the songs on it. I, I feel like David wasn't really prepared to like take the plunge all the way into um, what that was going to take yeah i mean we did some shows you know we did like did like a weird festival at red rocks and you know we played in new york a few times played in indianapolis a few times we did a show in louisville we played south by southwest um but overall i, I, I don't think i mean to that truthfully i don't think any of us wanted to get back in the van um but yeah i know i know you know david and i are both proud of that record and it was it was really fun to make but it was such a departure from chamberlain that it sort of felt I think I, it always frustrated me a little bit. It's like, wait, we are the two principal writers for Chamberlain. Like, we should probably just be making a Chamberlain record. This is nuts. Yeah. Like, we kind of made, like, a more adult adult record. But I, well, you know, I remember it coming out and being like, okay, this is a little bit more easy on the ears. But it, but it's, it's, but, David, it's more David's thing. Yeah. Th- that's what I should say. Like, David and I made a record, but it was very much um, sort of in, in, in David's mold and in and, and John David's But I'm glad mold. you tried it. Because, like, I, I don't know, you could have just, I don't know, for you to try something different and see what happens, I like. I was just so thirsty to play music in that era, too. Um, and it was just great to be, like, you know, we got to record it in, in uh, and Dirk was behind it. And we got to, like, record it at Quad Studios in Nashville, which is, like, this, like, great facility. And, um, yeah, it was all, it was being financed and it, it was a lot of fun. Um, but, yeah, in the end, I think David just really wasn't into like being a solo artist um but yeah i'm glad there's a record out there yeah <laughs> um i think to the um i always remember didn't i think probably people have many memories of him but there's like one distinct one i remember of him that always like makes me laugh i don't know if you remember he were at my the apartment i had in college uh-huh. and my one roommate had a dog and it was like a little, I forget what kind of dog it was, but it was like a little yippy dog. Yeah. But I remember coming out and you guys were all like chilling and I don't know, maybe you had the TV on or something. And like David's in this like most relaxed pose and the dog is like on his chest, <laughs> just like chilling. And the dog never does that. Oh, really? And so I feel like he was like the dog whisperer, but he was just like. He's still kind of a dog with him and his wife. They always have dogs. Yeah. So maybe that was it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but being able to. Um, I don't know how those memories were always nice. And I think to keep making the music and you guys were, I don't know. It's not like not saying lifer, but like, that's what you wanted to do. It wasn't like, Oh, this is the hot shit to make. Let's try it. Yeah. No. And it was, yeah. I mean, making, um, but yeah, I think making David's record was just funny. Cause we're the two principal writers. But then again, in hindsight, I look back on that record. And I'm like, eh, probably should have the other guys. Because again, we got away from doing that thing that was distinctly Chamberlain. It was like we still wrote good songs, but they didn't they didn't feel diref- differentiated from a lot of other stuff that was going on. Yeah. Um, which is kind of, you know, when we got back together and did the Gaslight tour, you know, I thought about that every night. I'm like, weird. I mean, we we don't even really have to practice with each other. It's like we get in a room for like an hour. I'm like, okay, we sound like Chamberlain again. Because <laughs> <laughs> right, I think we good. all we all allowed our own individuality to sort of shine in that um in that conglomerate so and i think it's rad like you said earlier all the things led from 
those relationships, those bands. I mean, you'll you you played with Texas, so now you're for Texas Reasons, so you're buddies with all them. Or oh, yeah, you Garrett lives a few doors down. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Garrett's from Texas <laughs> Reasons. <laughs> um, you playing a show with them tomorrow? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm not. Oh, it's Saturday. Oh, yeah. That's uh, I'm playing for- uh that's uh just uh, uh even funnier francis yes francis is playing that show weird <laughs> what up francis <laughs> which is like the old school like when i was doing solo shows that was like the the that was like you me francis yeah yeah kevin kevin divine oh yeah um yeah that was a long time ago but yeah, um, it's a very long time ago <laughs> 16 years ago oh my god yeah <laughs> Yeah, although, um, you know, we didn't really touch on it because it's kind of boring, but, you know, I put out a couple of solo records on a label in um, Germany called Arctic Rodeo, but I usually do, like, one Euro tour a year, every other year. Yeah, what is that like? Because I remember you'll, like, I'll hit you up or be like, hey, you going to the show? You're like, no, nah, I'm going to Germany for, like, a week and a half tour. <laughs> and I was like, all right, cool. And then I'll see the updates on, yeah. you know, Twitter or Facebook or something. Uh, What's well, What weird. is that? Why, why Germany? Uh, well... Um, did Chamberlain do really well all the time there? I well, feel like you well, guys we had did a... that Brian Fallon seven inch, the Raise It High seven inch. It's you know actually that's that's the last like new that's the last time we all kind of got together and made a song. Um, we did that and then the the cover with Brian, but um, there was a European seven inch that came out in Arctic Rodeo, like a European version of it. They pressed like five hundred copies. Um, and then I just started talking to Frederick and Frank, the guys that run that label. And sent him some songs I was working on. And uh, Frank's like, yeah, if you want to make a record, like, we're into these songs. Like, we only put out records we like. It's like, okay. So I made a record, and then they hooked me up with a, a booking agent, uh, this company called Flix. And then they uh, uh, they were just starting to get into, like, doing, like, singer-songwriter tours. So it was great. I went over there for, like, I think I did, like, 25 shows in 22 days wow the first time but but anyway i mean everything in europe is sort of like you know i don't want to criticize europe everything's almost like five years behind where i feel like record stores are still a bigger deal there but every tour i do i always end up playing a record store or two um over there and i end up selling records at shows too and cds at shows um, which is really bizarre yeah yeah, um, Germany, uh, and I know this just from working in the biz, that Germany is really slow. They still have a huge physical business. Oh, yeah. They haven't gotten to I, streaming. I played like the other. Cargo Records uh, headquarters because Cargo at the time, at my first tour, Cargo was distributing Arctic Rodeo. Um, and it was great. It, it felt like, I hate to say it, it felt like the old days, you know, playing for like a warehouse, you know, kind of like playing for Lumberjack or something like that back in the day. Yeah. What's the last stuff you did? I put an album called Nightly Waves. Yeah, I don't know what's next for me on that front, but because um, you're busy with the scoring and everything. Yeah, I mean, I'm writing all the time. It's just sort of like when you decide to make a record, it's just it becomes all-consuming. So. so you're kind of doing it naturally. <laughs> like if you have an idea, you'll put it down. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, my phone is always loaded up with bits and pieces of songs, um, which is kind of the best way to write. You know, I mean, it's not like anyone's like clamoring for like the next Adam Rubenstein record. No, so. no, there's not a line outside. <laughs> no, let me look again. Yeah, no, there's no line. No, but it's nice. To, I'm joking. <laughs> no, but I am just flattered beyond belief that there was a company that's like pressed vinyl of my last two records. Yeah, put me on tour. Um, you know, did some PR like, and it's funny because when I go over there now, I'm just like, I don't really know what else I really want. You know, I mean, it'd be nice to have you know more people at the shows when you play small venues and 50 people show up it's like but that's 50 people exactly 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it it feels great. You can't do that here. Uh, I tried to do a, a solo tour. Um, me and um, Andrew Paley from the Static Age went out together. Just did kind of like a singer-songwriter tour um, last January. And I, I thought about that every day of that tour. I'm like, I mean, these shows are fine, but there's no one feeding us and putting us up. And yeah. Giving us, you know, 150 euro guarantee and buying our records. Um, it's just, it's a di- it, different is, vibe. Yeah. That's why, you know, some bands just like live out there. Um, especially bands from our era. Yeah, they can go. I mean, how many. Like Charlie was in Sam I Am for a long time and they still go over there like every How many year. times does Youth of Today go over there for oh, something? Oh, yeah. I mean, Wally is, yeah. He's <laughs> always, always going to Europe and I don't blame him. <laughs> Why not go where the people go where they yeah, want? Yeah, exactly. The uh, I would tell, tell people about the film scoring stuff, like how you got into that and how that's sort of a different writing process too. I think than um, it's weird how I kind of fell into. It. I mean i I started working at this company called Manmade as a music supervisor, but they had um, a studio there, and I had access to everything there, and I've actually recorded both my records there. So shout out to them. <laughs> um, but um, I stopped working there, um, but when I was still there, I, I uh, a friend of mine um, posted something about this film called... Um, I'd done a little bit of scoring stuff in the past, like here and there, bits and pieces, some personal projects, and, and I did. I got some like placements and some small films, but um, I reached out to um, this director, Andrew Cohn, um, and Davey Rothbart are working on a film called Medora because I saw the trailer and they had a Kickstarter page. It looked interesting. It's like, hey, I work at this company called Manmade. Um, blind email, blind email. And I was like, if you want to get together sometime, like I'm, I'm a huge basketball fan. I love, in, I love. I'm from Indiana. Like this movie, like speaks to me in so many ways. What was the movie about? Medora. It's about a high school uh, basketball team who hadn't won in, in several years. Um, but it was more of sort of about the consolidation of like the school system. Um, sort of the small schools getting swallowed up by uh, the bigger schools in southern Indiana, um, but it just it just follows these kids. Um, anyway, so uh, there's one version of the film where the entire score is by uh, me and my friend Mickey Alexander, um, but then the film got bought and only some of our music ended up staying in the film. That's another bitter story. But became good friends with that director, and I met some other directors. I did a film called Nine Man. Uh, I did a film uh, a thirty for thirty short for. ESPN called Kid Danny. What was that about? Oh, uh, that was the Danny the, the little kid, the literally little kid from the Bronx. Yeah, Dominican kid who, um, yeah, his parents faked his his birth certificate. Um, yeah, so I did that, um, and I've worked on a recent film with Andrew uh, called Night School. Which just tell people his, about Night School because I loved that film. Oh, thank you. Uh, Night School. There's, it's a. Uh, a documentary uh it profiles three people and um it's funny all the all the films we end up working on take place in indianapolis sort of and andrew's not from indianapolis this particular director interesting uh but yeah night school um it, it profiles uh it's basically about adult education not a ged it's about um there's three states i think it's tennessee texas and and indiana are the only um the only states that sort of offer high school equivalencies for adults so the film profiles you know a woman in her 50s um a single father um another woman who's a a fast food worker and basically just like traces her journey just so people can see like how difficult it is to sort of like get a high school education after the fact but yeah i mean it was a really uh really fulfilling thing to to, uh, film the score because um it hit on all my sort of like you know emotional hot buttons like yeah i, I like to do the the saffy but um it's got some grit it's got some indiana to it so um but yeah i've done that and i've I've worked on some other stuff for pbs um i worked on a film about the life of sydney lumet um i'm gonna do a lot of cool stuff and some commercial stuff and a lot of other stuff coming down the pike too so i'm busy and it's great i feel like i'm like giving myself an elevator pitch to no, I like, to, like hire no, me to score the film no i want to say because we had a we're talking about we're talking about punk rock we're not talking about no what's interesting is the people adult world. kind of find like when you do something how things lead to other things and just like you said oh i randomly sent that person an email 
now he's this director, but now I'm going to work on this other thing, and I met another director. That's how these... You going up to a kid at a show because they have a cool punk rock shirt, you probably might be their best yeah. friend. Like, that's how I met one of my best friends in college. He had a Snapcase shirt on. Yeah. And I jumped on his back without him knowing me. And I said, we're going to be best friends. <laughs> yeah. And we are best friends. So, like, but, yeah. that's, but that's kind of the, just yeah. go and do it. And you didn't, I mean, you said you got hired as a music supervisor. You weren't before, but no. you had the music stuff pedigree before it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but yeah, it's it's funny how it works. Yeah, I mean, but yeah, I, I reached out to one director, and now I've worked with like seven or eight other yeah. directors, just because. Yeah. Just so I'm just saying, do it yourself. Go yes. and figure it out. Yeah, okay. maybe that does. I mean, maybe you're tying it all back together here. That it all kind of comes from that punk rock ethos of just yeah, doing it yourself and just reaching out to people, like calling the guy in the back the back of Maximum Rock and Roll that like wants to put on a show, and like seeing seeing what happens. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing I thought people should know is Adam and I don't talk about music a lot, so this is a lot of... We just talk about basketball. Pretty much. <laughs> Pretty much 99% of the text messages are basketball I'm bringing related. it back to Indiana. Gordon Hayward, congratulations. We that was unbelievable. Really, we haven't really talked about it. Um, <laughs> but I, lo- I, I remember love you inviting me over because the Celtic. I'm a Celtics fan. Adam's an Indiana Pacers fan, obviously. You would invite me over to your house or homes or someone, and yeah. we would because Celtics and Pacers were in the playoffs a lot against each other. I just remember that was really fun going to watch no, those games my, together. My first Pacers game, I'm realizing was Celtics at Conceco. No, at uh, Market Square Arena. Oh, and- Market Square Arena. Excuse me. It was a playoff game, I believe, in 1990. Wow. I moved to Indiana in 89, and my dad took me to a playoff game, and then I was, like, hooked. And then I got really hooked, you know. Oh, with Reggie. Yeah. I wouldn't even be a sports fan, I don't think, if it weren't for Reggie. Really? I mean, sports were just kind of a little periphery for me, pre-Reggie Miller, but um, I became such a big fan of the Pacers, um, yeah, through all those... um, he did Nick series and um and ever since then you know i am a loyal customer of nba league pass and i watch all 82 games every year <laughs> it is really fun i could i'll like text you it's like the west coast game <laughs> right. and it's like third period twelve thirty. I mean, this was maybe a few years ago before you kid but i just remember being like to, i could text you like just be like that was a crazy play yeah. and you'd like <laughs> write instantly back like right. the commentary like before right. it was <laughs> i could tell you were in it <laughs> yeah these days you need a little harder huh? you need as many distractions no but you need as many distractions as you can get these days yes um and uh yeah like i can't wait for nfl season to start i just like i need i need i need to get it in me just to- yeah there was a solo show i remember you were late because you were watching the colts Oh, Do you really? remember that? Oh yeah, I was at a Colts playoff game. We lost forty-one oh, yeah, to nothing were... to the Jets. Yes, you were at the. You I was at, at the Met game. Life. I was freezing my nuts off with a few <laughs> friends from Indiana at that game. That was again, everybody. That was Francis Garcia from Fourth Grade Nothing. Myself, who you don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> Adam and Kevin Devine played that show. Yeah. But yeah, you showed up. Remember, you had like two like model girls with you or something. You were like you you like came in with some <laughs> some pack. You were like you're coming in here. You're coming in hot. <laughs> yeah, they're friends. I had, I had some attractive <laughs> friends that all came. Hey, you guys still talk about that? What? Oh, you guys you you brought in all these hot girls. I'm like, does I, Francis say that too? Does yeah, Francis bring Fra- it up? Francis brought that up too. <laughs> You did though. You, yeah. ca- you came in with a guitar. You had two girls on the left and right. So we were just trying to quench the pain of that Colts game. <laughs> well, you got, it was forty-one to zero, right? Forty-one to nothing. Forty-one to nothing. As we were leaving, <laughs> like I, my friend Ryan, who was playing the show with me, we left. Um, yeah, we left before some of our other friends. We left like like midway through the fourth quarter. And as we were leaving, I think. The final touchdown was scored, and fireworks were like <laughs> ascending into the air as a backdrop as our bus like pulled away from that stadium. You're like, like, "Fuck my life!" Oh yeah, <laughs> I gotta play this dumb show. Tom dragged me to exactly. <laughs> Six people are gonna show up. I was like, "If I can just find some models to bring, maybe it'll dull the pain." <laughs> oh yeah, you were super bummed. Yeah, yeah you were bummed for a while that night. Yeah, that was awful. <laughs> 
Because the expense, it's not like you had to go to MetLife Stadium, which involves crossing a river and traversing into the state of New Jersey, which oh, is not an easy trek. In that era, too, we were young, young professionals. We None of us had any money. So you were taking the it bus. Was, it, was, it was a big expenditure to go to that game, too, yeah, yeah for sure. Now, let's call somebody. Yeah. I, I got a guy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I got a guy in the film world. He'll just get us something <laughs> he'll he'll get us in I'll he, he was a chamberlain fan back in the day <laughs> <sighs> it's it's crazy though the, the camaraderie you have i mean i'll just tell a quick story um which i just find to be a fascinating story stop me if you've heard well don't stop me because i've other, heard other it. people haven't heard it. other people haven't heard it. no but i i was i played a show in in cologne in germany at like a, a hostel but it was like a nice bar for people that don't know like hostels in europe can be it's it's i feel like in in the states we have this idea that like a hostel is like a bed bug ridden like <laughs> disgusting place but no the hostels are, are really nice but i was staying there that night i was like you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna tie one on like i'm here my room is like basically above the bar so i was there i played the show and this guy comes in he's like covered in tattoos and um he sits down next to me and we just start talking um and he starts talking. I was like, you have some really nice tattoos. And he's like, oh, thanks. He's like, yeah, my friend John was just here from New York. And he came to, I gave him some, you know, uh, I did some tattoos for him. It's like, okay, whatever. And we started talking about music and whatever. And then um, he starts talking about how he's really into like hardcore. Um, he's like, yeah, my friend John was playing in New York bands. And then one thing leads to another. I was like, wait, is your friend John Joseph of like the Cro-Mags? He goes, yeah <laughs> I was like that's crazy okay weird um and he wasn't at the show this guy came in after the show oh wow and then he's like well, what are you doing here i was like well I, I just played here and i was like i pointed like a poster on the wall and it says adam rubenstein of chamberlain he goes wait like fate's got a driver chamberlain <laughs> like, he's like, oh that is one of my favorite records and then we ended up drinking all night and you know i haven't stayed in contact with this guy but it's just like it's a weird thing there's a weird camaraderie you have with people that are just into the same kind of music i instantly liked him because he liked the chromags and he yeah. instantly liked me because well he liked my band but i feel like an asshole talking about this but adam you did great oh thanks i mumble a lot so hopefully no you're fine somebody can understand this <laughs> cool thanks adam all right well, thanks for having me Love you. what you got in store